Well, good morning. Um, it is a humbling uh, honor and privilege to be able to uh, offer the sermon today for the church at Houghton Wesleyan. I will say, for the last 10 years, as Heidi and I have put roots down and called this place home, I never imagined my first sermon at Houghton Wesleyan would look exactly like this, um, but I am so thankful for both the invitation, for those of you taking time to tune in and join us from wherever you are, and for the, uh, as I have now seen behind the scenes, the countless people and hours invested in making these services come together. So this time of year, every year, I ask myself the same two very important questions. The first is, is it possible to overdose on watermelon? The second is, about how much more money am I going, need, going to need to spend on SPF 50 sunblock? See, my love of bland tasting food, my pasty white skin, my birth certificate from a small town in West Virginia, and my hobby enthusiasm with American muscle cars paint me as kind of the stereotypical corn-fed white boy. And some of that is probably fair. But let me show you a picture of me with my parent and parents and siblings. See, I actually grew up in a home where I was the racial minority. I'm the oldest of nine. Seven youngest siblings were all adopted at infancy, but as you can tell, uh, none of them are white. And we actually uh, lived in apartment complexes in a pretty diverse town, Ithaca, New York, where Cornell University is. So all the people around us were from all over the world. At one point, we rented a house that was uh, large enough for us to have some extra rooms. So we had four homestay students, uh, three from Japan and one from Korea. So whether I was on the school bus, playing in the park, or at the dinner table, everybody was different. Now, right now, in our uh, culture, our world, our local communities, our churches, we're having some really complex conversations that are creating tensions over differences. Now, growing up surrounded by differences and having to have these conversations, I can't say that I'm somehow automatically better at these types of issues. In fact, I probably have some blind spots that are harder for me to see because of the situation that I grew up in. But I can say this. I have a deep yearning for a vision of the church where differences enrich us and don't divide us. Now, Pastor West a few weeks ago offered an incredible message specifically on racism. And if you missed it, I would recommend you go back and listen to it because the words were moving, important, and powerful. Today, I actually want to draw my attention or all of our attention to how the body of Christ leads in this season of turmoil. How does the diversity and uniqueness designed in the kingdom of God get reflected clearly when differences seem so divisive? This summer, we have seen lines drawn in the sand all over the place. We now know what our friends, family members, and neighbors think about things like vaccines, face masks, protests, black people, old people, corrupt police, the education system, the election process. Even somehow the technology of 5G cell phone towers has become incredibly contentious. And whether your family is diverse like mine or large like mine or not, I imagine you, like me, experience these lines zigzagging right through some really important relationships. And don't get me wrong, 
these conversations and issues are important, but I see so little conversation happening and much more verbal grenades being tossed back and forth. Because here's what happened. It's a natural reaction. We've all decided who's right, who's wrong, what's right, what's wrong. And we want to do our best to surround ourselves with people who are smart enough to be right. Well, the same kind of right as us, right? And distance ourselves from those who we've determined are wrong. And the people we really can't stand are those who are wrong but think they're right. So, so as I don't know about you, but for me, I've been wrestling with these issues and asking myself uh, some big questions. How as the people of Christ do we move forward? How does, the church that, how does the church become a place that demonstrates to a world in grief that the gospel of Jesus Christ is still good news? That it's actually good news. That it is the place where there is hope for humanity as we imagine life together. Because here's the thing. Jesus seems to paint a picture of the kingdom where the people that I think are wrong are still invited. And so these questions are really important. We have to figure this out. Following Jesus demands it. At the very least, it's going to be awkward to spend eternity with people I'm not comfortable talking to with right now. <laughs> these are big questions. And sometimes we shy away from these issues because it seems like it's too much. We don't know where to begin. It's easier to just ignore it. Do our best to tolerate we people, the people we don't agree with. Get together in our comfy little echo chambers with those who we do agree with. Make sure we encourage each other with how right we are. Complain just the right amount with those who are wrong. And I admit, it is hard. But there's just too much at stake. Because when I read the Gospels, Jesus has serious concerns for the people who have a list of who's right and who's wrong, who's in and who's out. It actually seems like the people who have those lists are the ones that miss out entirely. So here's the trick. I've been rattling around in my head and my heart and praying for a while saying, where do we begin? Where do I begin as a Christian? What does this look like? How do I reflect God's love in the kingdom in these times? And this passage that was just read kept coming back to my mind and my heart over and over because I think I need somewhere easy to begin. I need somewhere easy enough that even children get it. So if we take a look uh, in our minds back to that, that scripture, we'll just dig in for a little bit. Let's frame it up a little bit. In Matthew's gospel, we've actually made it pretty far in Jesus' ministry, at least in the sense that a lot has happened, right? By the time we get to this point, uh, Jesus is far enough into his ministry that he's predicted his death publicly or verbally to the disciples. He's transfigured. Uh, he's flustered the Pharisees multiple times. His healings and miracles have kind of become all the rage. And there actually are some hints that the disciples are starting to get what's going on. They seem to be getting a sense of the magnitude of Jesus' ministry in this kingdom he keeps preaching about. Now, as many of you probably learned in Sunday school or through other sermons, the, uh, the, 
the culture that Jesus is ministering in, children don't have a lot of status beyond uh, carrying on the family name or the ways that they could help out with family responsibilities or the business. Uh, this was not, children were not seen as some sort of important developmental stage to, to care for or invest in. And the disciples, as they're getting used to managing the crowds that show up when Jesus is in town, they think they're doing something pretty smart because they're like, hey, look, Children aren't super important. Jesus is super important. Let's keep the children away. So the disciples are like, we're all in. We've got this figured out. The crowds are set to go. Jesus, let's get the important people to him. You guys aren't so important, and you're also not sick, so let's just go over here. What's interesting is Jesus intervenes in a way that we've become used to as we've read the story, but it's entirely unexpected. Right? He not only draws attention to the children, but he points out that the children possess something fundamental to understanding this incredible ministry and kingdom he's talking about. Versions of this story show up in all three synoptic gospels, and in places, Jesus actually says something so strong to say that unless you become like a child, you can't even enter the kingdom. Now, I don't think Jesus is just trying to be intentionally scandalous, but he actually believes that there is something about children central to seeing the core of his ministry. Right, that there's something about being childlike which gives us a key to enter into his kingdom. And as much as we are familiar with this story, I just feel like this, something we, this is something we can't gloss over. Because the kingdom of God is central to Jesus' ministry. His life, his death, his resurrection, his teachings all point towards the kingdom. All of scripture, all of human history, all of our lives as Christians, as followers of Jesus, point to the kingdom. And here's the thing. The kingdom is the place where the things that we can't figure out right now are figured out, right? The place where wrongs are made right, the place where every tribe, tongue, and nation have equal footing and fully belong, where diversity is cherished and unity is perfectly achieved, and children can show us the way. Now, the trick is the immediate text doesn't explicitly say what Jesus is trying to identify in children that we need to emulate. And I don't know about you, but whenever I've reflected on this passage over the years, I assumed it was something about childhood innocence or maybe blind trust because of the immaturity inherent in children. But as I've thought more about it, I realized those, those just don't seem like appropriate options. It can't be something that only children experience. It has to be something accessible to adults or all ages. Otherwise, it's a really unhelpful example, right? I don't think Jesus wants to, us to uh, leave maturity or wisdom behind and channel, channel some sort of inner child anytime we need to encounter him. I will say this. It's important to make a distinction between childlike behaviors and childish uh, what's interesting is as we mature, we often leave behind the childlike wonder and amazement of the world around us and the little joys in life. And somehow we manage to hold on to the childish behaviors of selfishness and temper tantrums. I do think Jesus is talking about that childlike beauty, right? So I think actually when you read the book of Matthew and you look at the story in context, the key lies in some of the surrounding chapters. Because right around this encounter, Jesus has a number of teachings where he's talking about an essential design to the kingdom. The last will be first. 
In fact, as much as I tried to give the disciples credit that they were getting it, the chapter right before, Jesus has another encounter with the disciples and children where the disciples are arguing over who's going to be first in the kingdom. And Jesus pulls a child forward and says, this is who's going to be first in the kingdom. So they clearly, I, they clearly didn't get it from one chapter to the next. Maybe it was a longer time period for them than it was for us. But they missed it. And... <clears throat> For me, though, when we have the advantage of looking at the Scripture in context, it seems intentional that Matthew puts this story in the context or in the midst of all of these conversations about last being first. I think part of what Jesus is pointing to in children is that they have a humility which allows them to see others' humanity. That they have a freedom to love others because they can see them as human. In other words, all of those differences that are dividing us, all those things that seem just, those divisions that just seem so hard to cross, they're just not as insurmountable with kids. Because childlike existence is seldom about self-image or self-preservation or self-promotion at the cost of others. In the purest form with childlike humility, there's no calculating power grabs or using others to try and get ahead. I think one of the reasons as adults we're having a hard time to see a way forward in our culture is all, far too often we've been trained to approach relationships with our own interests as a top priority. We're calculating what we can gain from somebody else. We're constantly doing some sort of cost-benefit analysis, asking us what this person has to offer. Is it going to be worth what it will cost me? Or how much are they going to complicate my lives? And that will, be too, will that be too much for me to handle? Let me share with you a personal story where this really hit home for me, the distinction between kind of the, the stereotypical adult view and the, ch the child view. So many of you have experienced uh, those first few weeks or months when you bring home a newborn baby. And if you haven't, I'm sure you've heard of it. It is a painful, painful journey. There is a level of exhaustion that you did not know was possible. Uh, I remember one time finding my wife sound asleep in the hallway holding medicine upright because she just saw carpet and thought, I'll lay here. Um, and, and we all, many have heard these stories or know what it's like. You bring a child home from the hospital, they're up in the night, you're excited to have a new baby, but you have no idea what's going on. No one's giving you an instruction manual, and you start coming up with all kinds of crazy experiments how to get this child back to sleep. And it is amazing when you land on something. Well, for our firstborn, Silas, um, we, uh, we realized somewhere, somehow, that we could get him back to sleep fairly successfully with David Crowder Band worship music. It wasn't just music. It wasn't just worship music. It was David Crowder worship music specifically. Could be the middle of the night, could be in the car, but it almost worked all the time. When he was about one, the three of us, Heidi Siles and I, went down to Nashville for this large ministry conference, and Crowder was on stage leading worship. And we were like, this is perfect. Our son can meet his idol, or at least we're thankful that he's doing his work because we're getting some sleep. So we waited in line with crowds of people ready to get a picture, hand Silas over to the man who he loved so much, and this is what happened. See, Silas was terrified <laughs> completely. He cried and sobbed, and the in-person Crowder was entirely different than the music Crowder experience for him. 
Um, fortunately, Silas met up with Crowder a little bit later. We went to his church in Waco. For those of you who did not realize, between Janet Reno and um, uh, Joanna Gaines, David Crowder was the big man in Waco. But anyway, uh, or big person in Waco. Sorry, those were... But anyway, uh, Silas made up with, with Crowder. But on that same trip, Silas met somebody else who came to out, turned out to be pretty important in his life. There was a, there was a young woman by the name of Kat who uh, it was hard to, to, to really put her age exactly how old she was because she had lived a, a pretty difficult life. She had four or five kids, I can't remember exactly, who had all been taken from her because of social services as she wrestled with a drug addiction for a number of years. She had been homeless multiple times, but when we met her, she uh, found a place to live for a bit, had cleaned up and was trying to... Um, uh, get her feet back under her. Uh, she was working a minimum wage job doing custodial at the convention center where we were at. Uh, while we were there, uh, it, was a t it coincided with Heidi just having um, some surgery on her foot. And so she was either in crutches or a wheelchair. So when a one-year-old was getting restless in the convention and the conference, she would go out to the hallway. And somewhere early in the week, Kat and Silas met up. And they were immediately attracted to one another. In fact, every day they would look for each other and Kat would take her breaks with Silas and she would stay late for work to hang out with Silas and she'd come in the morning to hang out with him. It was amazing to see how close the two became over a few days. And in fact, because Heidi was limited in her mobility, Silas's important milestone of learning to walk happened at the outstretched hands of a woman whose arms were scarred with track marks from drug abuse. Here's the thing. Nobody was in line to see Kat. Nobody was waiting to get her autograph. Nobody was, was uh, going to put her on stage. Because as adults, we just didn't see her importance. But that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. And children can see that, right? As adults, it's so easy for us to operate out of, out of categories that make people less than people because they agree with us or they don't agree with us or because their decisions fit our framework, fit our framework for reality. We're worried that if we're around somebody that has an inconvenient idea for too long and we find out that the idea is true, then we're going to have to admit that we're wrong. And that's just too costly. So out of fear and insecurity, we villainize people that have stories or ideas different than ours. I think the problem is as adults, far too often, we put our identity in things that aren't meant to hold our identity, right? We've decided that our political structures, our financial security, our professional notoriety, our, uh, our neat and tidy looking family, our success with athletics, you name it, whatever it may be. Anytime we put our identity in something other than God, deep down we know we're on shaky ground and we'll do anything to make sure no one else realizes. It's not the same with children. Seldom do you see a child limit their contact with someone because of who they voted for in the last presidential election. Because children don't need to leverage others in order to feel secure. Later in Matthew, there's another section where children come up. Uh, this highlights where children show a level of security when adults 
are, are, are being kind of toppled over, I guess. So we get to Palm Sunday. Matthew's account, we, we know the story. Jesus comes into town, and shortly after, he's uh, turning over tables in the temple. He's calling out unfair power structures. And what does Matthew tell us? The children begin crying Hosanna again. They heard the adults. They were part of the parade. They were cheering. All of the sudden, things get really difficult, and the only ones left saying Hosanna are the children. The Pharisees get really upset and say, do you hear what these children are doing? And Jesus points them to Psalm 8 and states clearly the power of children's praise. Because in this instance, children aren't worried about the power structures being tipped. They just know Jesus is worthy of praise, and they're going to keep doing it. I don't know if this is painting a clear picture for you, but for me, as I consider how Jesus emphasizes that childlike humility and this, this trust uh, in, in, in something foundational, I then can begin to imagine how these complex conversations we all need to have and true reconciliation begin to play out in a world where Christians can somehow approach each other with childlike trust and love. When we stop approaching others as objects with capital for us to exploit or gain from or, or threats to our own security, where it becomes okay to listen even when it's difficult and okay to be wrong and ask for forgiveness and offer forgiveness when others admit they're wrong. Now, I want to be clear at this point. I do not think this is about being naive or minimizing, looking past or ignoring differences. Differences are not trivial or petty, and diversity is essential for the kingdom. But our insecurity with differences is what needs to be addressed. See, I've been around children a lot in my life, oldest of nine. My mom ran a daycare uh, from our home, and when Heidi and I were first married, she taught kindergarten at an all-kindergarten school. It was kind of this innovative thing where all of the school districts in the county all kids would have kindergarten together as kind of a healthy start and then head out to the various school districts. And um, uh, I would, all the, early in our marriage, I'd hang out and go on the field trips. And then I became a sub, and I would sub alongside Heidi. So it was really fun when Mr. and, Miss, Mr. and Mrs. Miller were the teachers. One time, I was a kindergarten art teacher for a whole week. And I am sure the children have not recovered in their art skills. But uh, surrounded by kids all the time, I realize kids aren't naive about differences. They aren't shy to point out issues. They notice when people are distinct. Parents have probably more than once had that occasion where a child asks a really awkward question out loud or in public because they notice something's different. The distinction is, though, that children, when they realize someone's different, they don't see it as a threat to their own existence. I think deep down it's because they know their identity isn't anchored in something shaky, it's anchored in love. They receive God's love through the adults around them who are pouring into them. They know it's safe to explore, to get to know, to ask questions, because they know if they encounter something, even if it's scary, there's someone to run to. When I was in kindergarten myself, I was a tiny little drip. I mean, I was four turning five. I had the perfect 1984 blonde bowl cut. Um, I headed off, I went off to kindergarten with my uh, Mr. T backpack and A-Team tin lunchbox, which were like my pride and joy at that time. 
But the first day that recess came along and I looked outside at that playground. I don't know why, but my hometown was really into large playgrounds. My one elementary school had Mr. Rogers come and do a show from the playground. I looked out at that playground and thought, I'm going to die. There's just people running everywhere. I have no idea what's going on. So I retreated with my teacher to the teacher's lounge. Now, in the early 80s, the teacher's lounge is where the teachers sat and smoked. So my pure, pink, perfect lungs were inhaled in this haze of secondhand smoke. But I was convinced that was safer than going out on the playground. After a number of days, I think my teacher realized this was not just an issue of me getting to know the other kids in my class. So she finally looked at me and said, I will go with you. And as soon as she went out to the playground and I knew there was someone there who loved me, I was free to explore and have all the adventures I could imagine. Eventually she went back in and life went on and hopefully my lungs have recovered. But the idea is that as children, they understand that they're safe because they've put their trust in something worthy of holding that trust. I think kids lead the way to the kingdom of God because they know how to anchor their lives in love. I think as adults, if we can remind ourselves how deeply and how truly and how honestly we are loved by God, it becomes easier to listen, easier to forgive, harder to villainize, harder to put other people in categories and make assumptions. It doesn't solve everything at all. We have some hard things to talk about and figure out. All of us are grieving in different ways and all of us have stories of pain that we've encountered that have been exasperated the last few months. We miss being together and coming back together is going to take time to sort out all of these details. But I will say this, for me, while this doesn't solve anything, it gives me a place to begin is I try to imagine what this hard work of reconciliation is going to look like. Now, let me remind you, leaning into the fact that God loves you is not about getting up in the morning, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and convincing yourself in the mirror, okay, God loves me, I've got this. Encountering love is never about convincing yourself of something. It's about putting yourself in the place time and time again where that love is received. Children do not need to convince themselves their parents love them. Children receive that love and learn it and grow from it. And similarly, as adults, we need to stand in those places where we are reminded that God loves us. There's a whole other sermon that I could give about what that looks like, but I think you all know spending time in those blessings where God has poured them into your life, putting yourself in the direct flow of God's grace and love and reminding yourself of those so that when you have those difficult conversations, you are anchored in something firm and you're less afraid of having your identity crumble around you. So how do we move forward in the months to come? I think we just start framing our lives around love. That we, we gain the courage to listen, to forgive, to have tough conversations. I know for me, as I try to anchor myself more and more in God's love and the gift that he has for me, that he has for all of you, my eyes get opened a little bit more every day to a new beautiful reality of the kingdom, of life with God. And on those days where it is really hard to imagine a way forward, I just look at the kids around me and let them show me what does it look like to move forward. Let me pray.
loving and gracious God, we have done nothing to deserve your love, and yet you offer it so freely. As we were reminded just a few weeks ago when Ken preached about the prodigal son, you are a God who pursues us. And Lord, right now in our human limitations, it is hard for us to know exactly where to begin as we imagine life ahead in these next few weeks, months, years, what it looks like to bring healing to the complexities in our culture, our churches, our nation. But we know, Lord, you are still on the throne. Your kingdom is still breaking in. And that your kingdom has special access when we become childlike in our faith. I pray that everyone listening to this message spread far and wide be reminded in the deep places of their heart that they are loved and that they can trust your love. Amen.